Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast, getting you through the panny D, hopefully, brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. How's week four of lockdown life treating you, Dolly? Um, up and down. I had a night out, a figurative night out on Saturday night, which lifted my spirits, where a group of me and my friends all linked up on Zoom, got very drunk doing a pub quiz, and then we all muted ourselves. This is the key if you want to do a Zoom disco. We all muted ourselves, other than our DJ, who was our friend Lacey. And then Lacey just played this playlist of all our favourite songs to dance to. And it was kind of magic. We all just uh, danced for like half an hour and we could see everyone in our squares dancing and then when people had to leave literally like we were in a club you would just see someone's face come up to the screen blow a kiss and then they'd leave and then by the end it was obviously just (laughs) me and Lacey and our friend Sabrina the last one standing but it was like kind of magic actually I really really I really really liked it I really recommend doing that we all had so much fun you did zoom over house party presumably because the 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 quality of Zoom is much better, isn't it? Like you and CJ yeah. keep disappearing on my house party. Everything's very delayed as well. Zoom seems to be the superior. I'm not wild on house party. I find people get quite pixelated on house party for me. I normally just prefer to do FaceTime. Do you know what I did do on Zoom yesterday, which was so funny? I did uh, my yoga studio uh, doing all their classes online. And I did one yesterday that I just I just was laughing so much throughout the class. I don't know how much actual yoga I did, where it was like, it was loads and loads of participants and this gorgeous, lovely yoga instructor speaking, like who was big on my screen. And then in the corner, there was like a sidebar of all the different participants. And it was meant to start at six o'clock. And obviously, just like in real time yoga, there were lots of like stragglers coming in a bit late. So she was trying to like really center us and get quite zen. And she's like, right, why do we do yoga? I thought I'd do a reading that really reminds us about the practice. And then she'd have to stop and be like, hello, Alison. Yes, hello. Yep, we've already started um, about the practice of, oh, Jane, hello. Hi. And this went on for ages and it was got quite comical. And then finally, she was like, right, everyone's here. So it's about finding inner strength. And then this woman's face just came close up and she went, hello, can everybody hear me? <laughs> And all of us, she's like, yes, hello, Prunella. Um, We've actually already started. (laughs) And I just looked at the side and everyone was just pissing themselves. (laughs) That's a very nice moment of solidarity. Yeah, it was really lovely, actually. You know, I hadn't realised how unstretched and creaky 
this little gnarly body is. And even though it wasn't a very strenuous um, exercise class, it felt so good just to kind of stretch out. I got back in the gym for two classes in between having the baby in lockdown. (laughs) So my exercise has been quite limited this year. I'm thinking about joining in with Joe Wicks' morning PE session. Thinking about giving that a go. Yeah, people are really enjoying that. And do you know what else I was recommended? After I spoke on the podcast last week about wanting to do an 80s aerobic dance class, uh, lots of people have recommended... Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but I'll link to it in the show notes. This They're based in Australia, so you'd have to work out the time difference of the classes, which might be quite mad, having to get up at like 3am to do a sort of Jane Fonda workout. Um, but they do these like proper retro 80s uh, aerobics classes online that look brilliant. Week four lockdown, how are you finding it? My husband pointed out instantly that this is now the sound of lockdown. I'm definitely starting to feel the tedium. I'm caught between what, and I think it was John Freeman that wrote this, the compulsion to do everything and nothing. Like I feel caught between reading all the news and none of it, you know, spending lots of time on social media, sort of engaging Mm. and learning, being on none of it. Twitter's incredibly febrile. There's a lot of debate going on and I'm not really in the space for debate and I'm struggling to find the middle ground a little bit I think the routine of kids is a blessing and a distraction but it also very quickly feels like Groundhog Day yeah I'm sure Brene Brown calls what those of us lucky enough not to be ill but at home worrying and predicting and vibrating with a sort of nervous energy she calls it the collective weary which I think is very apt she's so good Brene Brown at finding language to articulate the kind of collective feeling isn't she yeah and I actually wanted to talk about a few things that I found interesting and comforting as we adjust to this temporary way of living in the hope that it may bring solace to some of you guys as well so Brene Brown's podcast Unlocking Us bit of a schlocky title but loads of good stuff that's where I heard about the collective weary She also discusses something that I think is quite pertinent, which is this idea of comparative suffering. So the idea that you can rank suffering and that we're trying to rank suffering. So, for example, feeling guilty that you are feeling a bit miserable in lockdown because there are others worse off than you. And Brene says it's not useful to deny your own feelings, that that actually doesn't help anyone. I can't be angry and afraid about being sick right now because there are people sicker than me. I can't be scared for my children because there are homeless kids who have nowhere to sleep tonight. Why should I be tired and angry? I have a job right now and so many people don't. I get it. I do it. I fight with it. But this is not how emotion or affect works. Emotions do not go away because we send them a message that, hey, you know, message incoming. These feelings are inappropriate and do not score high enough on the suffering board. Please delete all feelings related to this. You are not in pain enough. Thank you. That's not the way this works. The emotions that you're feeling, that we feel, When we deny them, double down, they burrow, they fester, they metastasize. And not only 
do our feelings double down and grow. They invite shame over for the party. Because now we're like, I am a bad person. Because I'm sad or scared or lonely or frustrated or disappointed or pissed off. (laughs) She's so smart, isn't she? And actually, I completely agree with her. I couldn't agree with her more. I think I think what becomes more complicated, and this is the thing that we all must be cognizant of, is giving yourself absolute rightful permission to express those feelings without comparison and global context, but doing it in a safe and appropriate and a sensitive space, doing it with the right people and in the right setting. That That's the thing that's important. They double down. Yeah. God, I love her voice as well. I could just listen to her for hours. And in fact, I have, and you should as well, with the power of vulnerability. That was literally hours that I had Brene Brown speaking in my ears and I could have done it for three times as long. That's what she's really famous for, isn't she? Is she a human behaviour expert or an emotional psychologist? Studies emotions, does she? She's got loads of different qualifications and titles. She's like a... She's, oh, she's a hu- even... She studies human people. Yeah, she studies the human, the human people. <laughs> the human people. I also found uh, really helpful and interesting uh, my favourite modern philosopher, Alain de Botton, on Elizabeth Day's How to Fail. She did like a special bonus Panny D episode. Delicious sentence, that. My favourite modern philosopher. <laughs> well, actually, I have some ancient ones that I'm also quite fond of, Dolly. I think Socrates had a lot to say. Do you know who my favourite one is, modern-wise? Dolly Parton. I thought you were going to say Gemma Collins. Anyway, so (laughs) Alain de Botton discusses something called constructive pessimism. And by that, he means mitigating things so that they lose their power to be terrifying. So instead of wailing, everything is terrible, we will never recover, which is destructive pessimism. It's a way of kind of mediating and not curating, but... um, I suppose, understanding your worst fears. He also advises, which I found very comforting, that we forget about trying to be all zen and say la vie about it. You know, if it's not working, and it's not working for most people, surrender to what is, without a doubt, a time of utter madness. It's completely normal to be in distress. It would be rather strange if we were not distressed by this. It's a sign of sanity to go insane at points. And I think this is one of them where we might legitimately lose our hold on ordinary composure. So I I really wouldn't want to advise anyone to feel that this is a moment for cosmic serenity and sort of stoic forbearance. It's just as much a moment for losing your mind for a little bit. And, And maybe that's okay, and hopefully it will return. But if it gets lost this week or next, that's a good time. It's a good time to get lost, to get it lost. I loved that episode. Elizabeth Day is putting out the most extraordinary episodes of How to Fail during this time. Uh, The one with Mo Gowda as well, I found indescribably helpful. I did find the rationality of Alan de Botton was very calming and reassuring in this episode. I also love the term cosmic serenity and stoic forbearance. Yeah. I'm just going to put that into my social media bio. Cosmic serenity and stoic forbearance. He's good with them words. 
And the human behaviour expert Oliver Berkman suggests that there is a deep freedom to be found even in the presence of severe external constraints. I found this a really interesting concept. To break it down, what he means is that if you shift your ambitions to rather than being about how you act upon the world, about how you plan to act upon the world, it becomes something that is more in your control. And it reminds me a little of the idea of the autotelic self, which I learned about last year and have become really interested by. And the autotelic self is one that sees the activity as one that sees the activity itself as the self-contained goal rather than the activity being a part of a process of achieving something else, acknowledgement, applause, money, etc., etc. And I think that's why I have been enjoying spring cleaning so much because that's always been a way for me of navigating chaos in like a practical way. And it feels self-contained and immensely pleasurable because it isn't dependent on someone else's interpretation of that activity Mm. and how I've done that activity. I wouldn't Mm. say, look how tidy my tea towels and baby bottles are. Do you think they're tidy? Please tell me they're tidy. Could they be tidier? How would you tidy them? Like, Mm. that's just not something that comes into that activity. And I do think that might be part of why I've been finding that a really satisfying release. Do you know what? I think that kind of activity is so nourishing uh right now an activity that is for the intrinsic rather than the extrinsic and it is why this is going to make you laugh it's why i am missing my guitar so much you don't have it with you no and i every day i'm really really missing it because that is an activity thank god for the ears of the world that i do not on the whole really share with anyone else because i'm so shit at it so you it's are literally not so just... shit. <laughs> um, so it's just it's you are Dolly Marling. <laughs> oh, my heart fluttered a bit when you said that. Um, it is something that I I mainly do just for me. My occasionally long suffering friends, either drunk at my flat or via WhatsApp voice note, <laughs> as Pandora regularly has to suffer through. But I hadn't realised how important that activity is for me of just doing something for the pleasure of the activity and not even really evidently for honing any skill just for doing the thing for myself and yeah can't it's something I'm really missing the guitar is quite a trendy instrument to have chosen to play in your adult age and it definitely fits with your urban bohemian luxe vibe but I think it would have been much more original and my god I would enjoy this if you had taken up the flute the liar. <laughs> but the flute is just... I used to play the flute. Did I don't you? know why anyone lets their children play the flute or the clarinet. That is never a musical instrument that ages well. You're not going to get it out at a party as an adult and start no. jamming. <laughs> jam on a flute. Please, can I see you jam on a flute? Something else that you would also enjoy, I think, about my musical past. And it was musical. I played five my musical instruments. musical past? Five musical instruments, including my own voice, because that counts. Five is a lot. Yeah, and I so I played the recorder, and I but I played the whole range. So I had them from piccolo right through to literally the big daddy of of recorders. That's that's like a giant pepper grinder, and I had a and I had a special case for them. My mum made me a a quilted case for my recorders. (laughs) 
<laughs> what other ones did you play? I had about five. I'd get them for that was my music that was my Christmas and birthday presents for about three what years. What other instruments? So you had recorder, flute. Okay, so I played recorder plural, the family of recorders actually. Yeah. Flute, piano, guitar, drums, and my own voice. Oh Six. my god. Did you do the Got grades? to grade eight on the drum kit? Yes, what you the know fuck? me. I'm, I'm a tick I'm a tick boxer. I cannot believe you got to grade eight on the drums and we've never talked about this. I also got to one belt off black belt in karate. Oh my god. This is insane. Anyway. How I know, do you ever want le- to play the drums now? Yes. Uh, my mother sold the drum kit, so I can't. Did you know I can ride a unicycle as well? I'm actually going to... I'm really annoyed. I don't have it here. It's at my parents' house. But I think that that would have been quite a good thing to have uh, got back into in my kitchen. But I'm going to bring him up again when I next see my parents. Last question. Did your mother make you a quilted case for the unicycle, (laughs) the guitar and the piano? (laughs) I was a bit indulged. I was the youngest child. (laughs) I wanted to alert people, if they weren't aware, to the fact that Soho Theatre have put some of their most loved shows and comedy online for people to watch, including the original stage show of Fleabag, and all the proceeds are going to COVID-19-related support charities. Jessie Cave's first one-woman show, I Loved Her, is on there as well, which I watched when it was first on in 2016. In fact, it will come as no surprise to you, Panda, that I loved it so much. I think I watched it twice. So if you're missing comedy and Soho theatre and great writing, I highly recommend tuning in and downloading those. There's so much great entertainment content being kind of, I suppose, pivoted for this time, isn't there? Like the estate of Seamus Heaney, have been getting different poets and writers to read out poems by Seamus Heaney, which you can find online, which I think is really lovely. The Graham Norton mm. show is back, done from his desk and his iMac. You can see it's quite painful for him at times to get that sort of synergy. It doesn't, you know, <laughs> totally work. But they're bringing it back. Gogglebox is back for the Panny D. There's just, there's some really impressive um, attempts to bring as yeah. much joyful media content to us as possible. Do you know, I watched the other day, because I am not tuned into terrestrial TV with my TV at home. I only use my TV to watch like Netflix and Amazon and iPlayer. So I'm really enjoying where I'm living at the moment. It has a TV that's plugged into the kind of normal channels. And it's like watching the most insane programs just for the novelty of watching them and the other day I watched a program on channel five while I was eating my dinner that was like Charles and Camilla a love story and it was this like really naff royal documentary and I think all the talking heads have been recorded post lockdown because they all look like they've been shot on an iPhone on portrait mode and it's just like Jenny Bond with this like 
iPhone, obviously like propped up in her living room, giving all her expertise and her kind of insider info on Charles and Camilla. And I have to say, I loved every bloody minute of it. (laughs) So watch more Channel 5. That's your takeaway. I've got some tidbits for you, Dolly, from a couple of dames. Judy Dench on The Graham Norton Show, when he asked her what she'd been up to, she said, I'm doing a bit of this and a bit of that, mostly this, which I thought was just really poetically nonsensical. I love her. And Eileen Atkins, are you a fan of her? Adore her. So she did a conversational piece with Timothy Chalamet, I know you adore him, in Vogue. And it made me laugh so much because she summed up the predicted audience of their now postponed play at the Old Vic as being 40% women who want to sleep with Timothy, 40% men who want to sleep with Timothy and 20% of her old faithfuls. (laughs) My favourite thing about Eileen Atkins is the Colin Farrell story. Do you know this? No, what's that? So this Colin Farrell story, so when she was in her 60s, so you can watch this on YouTube. 12 years ago, she went on the Graham Norton show and she told the story of how uh, Colin Farrell had tried to seduce her when they were in something together. I'm not sure what it was. She was 69 and he was 27. And oh my God, good on her. And he'd given it a good go and she had said, thank you, but no, thank you. Anyway, Colin Farrell then goes on the Graham Norton show the next year and he's quite fidgety. He's got very long, thick hair at this point and he does a lot of flicking it back and forth like a sort of slony teenage girl, you know, like that. (laughs) And um, Graham Norton says, so I had Eileen Atkins on last year and she told a story and he said, yes, you know, I know I'm, I'm, I'm well prepared. And he says, but she got your permission before she told it, didn't she? And he was like, did she bollocks? <laughs> she did not get my permission. <laughs> anyway, he then says that he went to see her in the theatre about a year later. And he bought her a massive um, bouquet of flowers to be like, uh, you know, this isn't over. I am, I am still at your mercy. If you want a couple of minutes of real joy, watch the YouTube video of Eileen and Graham Norton. And then watch the YouTube video of Colin and Graham Norton. And both of them come across really well. I think it's a really lovely example of how a young man can be frisky for a woman and she very firmly tells him no and he takes it in completely, you know, with brilliant stride. He takes it, yeah. he takes it with grace and just a little bit, a tiny bit of humiliation, I think. Well, quite right too. Um, but she, yeah, she's she is a very, very beautiful striking sexy actor and actually there's this great documentary that i think i talked about on the high low called nothing like a dame which is that sounds amazing yeah it's between eileen atkins judy dench joan plowright and maggie smith and it's a it's a kind of four-way conversation over a feature film period uh of time of them talking about um the theatre and showbiz and acting and the craft and it's it's like it does sound a bit pretentious there are moments of pretension but it's just so charming and delightful and actually would be a great thing to watch during lockdown and there's this very brilliant bit Maggie Smith is like on such caustic form throughout the whole thing and there's a bit where Eileen Atkins has been talking about when she was younger she was always told that she wasn't a great beauty but she is a very sexy sensual performer and that's something that she had on site you know that she was told that frustratingly by by kind of male directors and at one point she's talking about Cleopatra and she says oh I 
was offered Cleopatra and I decided to never play Cleopatra because I wasn't I didn't think I was beautiful enough. And Maggie Smith looks over and says, oh, Eileen, what are we meant to say to that? Oh, no, Eileen, you're so attractive. It's like, has this real rant. (laughs) And then she just like says this one-liner that makes so little sense that I love, where Maggie Smith says, no, neither did I. That's why I did it in Canada. (laughs) You quoted a really great line from it last time you spoke about this. What was it? Can you remember what's your favourite line from it? Yeah, it was Judy, it was Judy Dench uh, was talking about when she went to hospital uh, and she was being spoken to like she was a, an elderly sort of doddery person and the nurse said to her, "Do we have a carer?" And, and I blew my top. I blew my top. I'm afraid I completely blew. I mean, I will tell you what I said. You can't publish it. I said, "You." I said, I've just done eight weeks in the winter's tale at the Galaxy. So I'd love it if the nurse said, That's wonderful, dearie, but do we have a carer? <laughs> I've got a very good lockdown life hack for you from the journalist Flora Gill. If your phone does that irritatingly prudish thing of always correcting fucking to ducking every time, then she recommends adding someone into your contacts called fuck fucking and that way your phone thinks it's a name and will never autocorrect it when you type it in a text which is very useful during these slightly fraught times it's also very useful during these very horny times because i think if every single woman in britain had a penny for every time they received a drunken text from a past lover at around 11 o'clock, saying how much they wanted to duck them, we would all be millionaires. Speaking of millionaires, in fact, billionaires, Twitter founder Jack Dorsey has given $1 billion towards fighting coronavirus. Uh, that's 28% of his fortune, which... Wow, that is sizable. De- yeah. It's been, compared to Amazon's frequently criticised Jeff Bezos, who gave $100 million, which is just 0.1% of his fortune. Yeah, over a quarter of your fortune. That is... Yeah, putting your money where your mouth is, isn't it? Mm. And, I mean, both of them, to be honest, are better than Richard Branson, who asked for a £500 million government bailout for Virgin having put forward just 5% of his own money. And Philip Green, who furloughed all 14,000 of Arcadia's staff rather than dip into his own pockets. So I think Jack Dorsey is the exception rather than the rule where these billionaires or almost billionaires are concerned. Liam Gallagher's doing a free gig for NHS workers. Rihanna has donated almost £1.5 million for domestic violence victims in lockdown. And Jacinda Ardern, God, I love her, Prime Minister of New Zealand, released a statement just before Easter assuring children that the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy do count as essential workers. Isn't that delightful? What a babe. (laughs) Dolly, what have you been enjoying? (laughs) I read Terry White's upcoming memoir this week called Coming Undone, which was a breathtaking read. Terry White is a magazine journalist, a very successful magazine journalist, who moved to New York in her 30s to take on two prestigious editor roles in succession. But despite the fact that Manhattan had always kind of offered her this this world of other, which I think for a lot of women of our generation, 
um, who've grown up watching the films and watching the TV shows and reading the books that we've all consumed. It does feel like Manhattan can be this kind of cinematic dreamscape and this place of respite and a place where she could sort of rid herself of her past demons. When she got there, she very quickly uh, realised that actually it did the total opposite and that New York and its kind of noise and its and its ambition, relentless ambition and its loneliness um, is the thing that eventually leads Terry into a mental health crisis and sees her ending up in a psychiatric ward. So the book is split between telling the story of that unravelling in New York and the kind of quite extraordinary draconian and frightening experience of, of the, the locked psychiatric ward um, that she ends up in. And then it also tells the story of her childhood, which is also an extraordinary story. She grew up in uh, severe poverty with a teenage single mother and a heartbreakingly disconnected relationship with her father. And she was abused both physically and sexually by two of her mother's boyfriends. To be totally honest, it is in part a harrowing read. I had to put it down a couple of times when I was reading it because she doesn't speak nebulously about the details of her her childhood trauma. But her honesty and her eloquence is the thing that makes it such a privilege to read. I cannot stress enough what a skilled writer she is. And the proof of that is really the fact that a lot of this book takes place sort of inside her head, much like The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. Uh, really reminded me of The Bell Jar in parts. There are descriptions of her outside world and the things that she experiences in her relationships. But the true journey that you go on is one that's inside her memories and inside her emotional landscape. And let me tell you, emotions are very, very hard to write about compellingly. And to find a way to personalize emotion as well as making it recognizable and to describe feelings that have been felt billions of times by billions of humans, to describe those things in a new way takes an enormous amount of intelligence and talent. And she just has it in abundance. Um, I want to read an extract. So this is when she's writing about um, a man in her life uh, with whom she's in a kind of destructive relationship. And it's writing about a kind of obsessive love that I think many of us have experienced that kind of briefly took her out of her old pain and into a new one. When I sit, I think of him. When I sleep, I dream of him. When I walk, he's in my stride, in the bend of my elbow as an arm swings. He's invaded my brain and I can't get him out. I don't want him out. He's a stranger who I know every inch and crack and crease of, the familiarity humming in our DNA. There are more meetings packed with heat and longing, more dreams, texts, emails scratched out in the agony of absence. I gladly offer up my jaw as the yoke is fitted around my neck. I feel so in love and so insane, so desperate and deranged. Every sound is loud, bouncing uncomfortably off my eardrums. Every colour I see burns through to the back of my eyes, turning the sockets black. I read about a woman who has her tear ducts cauterized, scars forming over and closing the pinprick holes shut. I want to burn my own to keep all of him, the chaos and ecstasy inside me. It's such a trip to read. I can't really find another word um, to describe the kind of the emotions that she pulls you into in such an affecting way. And it's just a raw 
shocking, beautiful book. And as I say, it just feels like a privilege to read and to be invited into those experiences that are so luckily foreign to so many of us and very tragically are still so prevalent for lots of young women. And it also is a kind of amazing tale, an inspirational tale in terms of understanding this woman's background and where she ended up. You know, I can't stress enough how respected Terry White is as an editor. I went to my first um, press awards this year, which I've never been to before. And someone said to me at the table, oh, the kind of ongoing joke of the press awards for the last decade is Terry White wins everything, uh, which she did that night. I think she she won editor of the year or some sort of editor award because she is so, so well regarded in, in our industry as a woman who can really build the character of a magazine and really turn magazines around. So it just made me feel even more kind of respect and awe for her that she ended up uh, with the life that she has and the career that she has, despite all those odds being stacked against her in childhood. And I think those stories are just so powerful to share. So that's out on the 2nd of July and is available to, to pre-order. There's lots of brilliant memoirs coming out or just out at the moment. It's a, it's a really great time for reading memoirs, I think, by uh, interesting, accomplished women who have overcome things that you would never know if you just know them in their professional capacity now and like you say it's a, it's a real privilege to be to be reading them I've got actually a whole stack of them that one included that I'm really yeah. excited about reading what else have you been enjoying reading you've had your head buried in a book this week haven't you Yes, I read and loved the Sense and Sensibility screenplay and diaries by Emma Thompson. I stayed up until 2am reading it all in one night. So the 1995 adaptation of Sense and Sensibility, have you watched it, Panda? No, I'm really bad with my period dramas. There's a couple of massive points of difference between me and you. One is that I'm just awful with music. And another one is that I'm just, I'm not a a, a PD kind of gal. Like I've never watched Downton. I don't think I've probably watched Sense and Sensibility. Well, look, um, Downton is is like shite, delicious, <laughs> edible shite. Um, but the nineteen ninety five. Okay, this is an actual masterpiece, and okay, okay. there have been I will, I will. so many uh, Austen adaptations over the years, and this is regularly spoken about with so much adoration and reverence here and overseas in america there's a huge audience devoted audience to it it's a really really special film and you have to trust me when i say that i know you would love it so if you watch if you watch one pezzadi in your whole life i beg of you it has to be the 1995 adaptation of sense and sensibility so I'm trying to work out what a pezzadi is and i've just read Okay, if I watch one period drama. Okay, I will. And then I'll join the fan club that you clearly secretly run on Facebook. (laughs) So this adaptation of Sense and Sensibility that I'm talking about was written by Emma Thompson. And she actually, I learned from her Desert Island Discs, wrote it from the depths of heartbreak uh, during her divorce from Kenneth Branagh, which I am... just sort of fascinated by because I think I'm always interested in people who create amazing work during a breakup because when you're going through the pain of a breakup for me that feels like you know you just feel dead inside really and that's such a strange place 
to have to be creatively fertile and bring in new life into the world. Um, so I think that's like, it has such a distinct kind of lifeblood quality. I think often those things that are created uh, during the end of a relationship or when someone's mourning a relationship. So uh, that's one of the reasons I was very interested in reading the diaries that are attached to this, uh, to the screenplay. The screenplay is just a total joy to read. It took five years for her to write and had multiple rewrites and rigorous sort of conditioning and reconditioning. So if you're someone who wants to write for the screen, it's a great learning exercise to see how the words were written on the page and how that transferred to the screen and, and came alive. Um, but the diaries are the real treat, not only because Emma Thompson is just so funny and it's full of delicious detail about her fellow actors there's a lot of alan rickman being very grumpy um there's a lot of hugh grant being very resistant of emma thompson's sort of gushy affection but if you're at all interested in filmmaking it's so useful because it's an almost day by day account of what it is to put a film together and live on location and shoot on location and live amongst the film crew and she writes about that experience both as a screenwriter and as an actor because sorry I should have said she also um starred in it and she really goes into the details of the kind of practicalities of making something for the screen the difficulties the artistic differences uh the limitations the good days the silly days and the hellish days and what it really made me realize as a creative person that I think is such a valuable lesson for our listeners who haven't watched Sense and Sensibility, I know I'm sounding sycophantic now. Please go watch it. It's available on iTunes to buy on iTunes. And I think it's on Amazon as well to buy. It is a really magic film. It's uh, really funny and warm. And the charisma that comes off the screen from every single actor, it's so well cast. It's shot in beautiful, beautiful Devon countryside. And it's it's there's a real... There's a magic to that film. And when you read these diaries and you read about what it was like to shoot, what it was like in the pub when they finished shooting at the end of the day, what it was like, what the relationships were between the crew and the actors, you realise that the magic of making that film and the atmosphere of that creative collective seeped into the DNA of what you see on the screen. And it was such a good reminder to me that if you're creating something, often the process of creating it, whether you're aware of it or the audience is aware of it or not, it does become visible in the final product. There are just some brilliant entries in this diary that I wanted to read to you. So this is a diary entry after the kind of pre-shoot party, their first party together. 9.30, back from party. Crew were rigging and didn't really show till 8.30. But we tarted about and said hello to a few folk, and they all seemed great. Hugh Grant arrived, slammed into a pint of bitter and some chicken goujons like nobody's business. I had a glass of water and tried to keep my hands off the scampi. <laughs> Reads a little bit like Bridget Jones. But it's so good. Hugh Grant makes me think of Bridget Jones as well. Oh, this bit's kind of great because Greg Wise, who plays Willoughby, ends up as Emma Thompson's husband after this film. 8.20am, slept heavily from 1 to 8, weary but calmer from a drinking night. Bath and then a walk with Kate before lunch. That's Kate Winslet. Praying for good weather for the wedding. Greg Wise, Willoughby, turned up to ride, full of beans and looking gorgeous, ruffled all of our feathers a bit. 
It's so amazing when people keep diaries. I'm forever sad that I've never been good at keeping them because my sister kept a diary for 25 years and it is amazing. It's moving and hilarious to look back and read a lot of our family history in, in her teenage um, diaries and her 20s diaries. And I'm just sad I never did it. Yeah, I know. And the thing that you realise in reading this diary is, first of all, it's it's the small, this is what Tina Brown said when we interviewed her, it's the small moments of like what she ate or a sort of random conversation she had with a camera op. These tiny things that just go through your brain at the end of a day like a sieve and you can't ever remember them. If you put them in a diary, they just give you such direct, you know, clear access to that period of history. There's also near the end of the diaries this great bit, so it's obviously in the mid-90s, where she says, Tuesday, 27th of June, Hugh G in a spot of bother up LA, apparently. Something to do with a blowjob. It's all right for some, I thought. Yes, of course. And there's that mug shot that he's become very famous for. I bet you can recollect it instantly. He's wearing a, a brown and beige striped polo shirt, um, <laughs> looking looking a bit floppy and uh, a little bit uncomfortable. And finally, I just wanted to read this bit. For reasons known only to themselves, the caterers did a Spanish evening. Paella. I smoke in an empty trailer, the papers full of Liz and Hugh in a most revolting and upsetting way. Was reading Dennis Potter's last interview with Melvin Bragg. He said he'd like to shoot Rupert Murdoch. He can't now, but I could. In the absence of an ashtray, I sit flicking my ash onto the carpet. I am a slut. (laughs) Panda, what have you been reading this week? I'm in the last few pages of Hadley Freeman's book, House of Glass, The Story and Secrets of a 20th Century Jewish Family, a family memoir which spans three generations, two world wars and almost 100 years. And I wanted to recommend this book this week because we've been recommending a lot that aren't out yet, which is something that we love to do. But a few people sent me a message saying, please, can you recommend something wonderful that's out now? So this is my recommendation of something wonderful that is out now. House of Glass grew out of Guardian journalist Hadley's fascination with her grandmother, Sala, who she was always terrified by. Sala looked so sad, she wrote, and there are few things that terrify children more than sad adults. And this book is 18 years in the making, tremendous amounts of research. And what Hadley realised is that in order to tell the story of Sala, a Polish Jew who was near forced by her siblings to marry an American named Bill, Hadley's grandfather, who she didn't and would never love, in order to get her out of Paris during World War II when it became an incredibly dangerous place for Jewish people to be living. She needed to tell the story of the rest of the siblings too, Henry, Jacques and Alex. And the book is half a sweeping tale of family history, half a history of what it means to be Jewish in Europe in the last 100 years. It is moving, at times devastating. It's plot driven. It's historical. And I learned absolutely loads about things that... I feel quite strongly I should have known already. We all know about Kristallnacht and the Holocaust and the concentration camps, but I knew much less about the pogroms that preceded that. Unsurprisingly, anti-Semitism did not just spring up, you know, just in time for the Second World War. And Hadley takes us right back to the beginning of the 20th century and how that uh, affected Jews and really shaped the Jewish experience that, 
I mean, didn't, you know, even end after World War Two. She talks about how anti-Semitism is, is bubbling now and, you know, the role that that plays in politics, whether that's through Trump or Corbyn and the Labour Party, you know, the accusations of the last few years. And it probes the idea of collaboration. So people who collaborated with the Nazis during the war um, even Jews and resistance fighters, she said, might have collaborated with Nazis if it meant protecting their families and their livelihood. So that's not something I knew a huge amount about. The book is impossible to sum up in a neat review. There are so many bits that make your heart leap and plummet when Paris start taking a register of Jews, for example, and you know what's coming, particularly for those who devastatingly think that if they abide by the government by putting their name on the list then they will be rewarded and protected for their good behavior and actually of course it was the opposite and I don't want to give anything away as you become very invested in the siblings lives and it's paced so beautifully almost like a thriller so it would be to do a disservice I think to say what the kind of fate of the four siblings was and the rest of the family um Instead, I want to reveal um, a few sort of soupçons of delight that are already known. Her great uncle, Alex Magai, was a fashion designer and art collector who became very well known over the course of his career. And when he's a fashion designer in Paris, he employs a young designer called Christian Dior to work for him. And Alex's life is full of things like that. When he moves to Paris, the whole family moved from I think what is now considered Poland but was thought of as Austria when they moved to um, Paris and he uh, makes friends with um, some other creative Parisians his friendship group includes Marc Chagall who obviously then went on to become a very very well-known artist it's an extraordinary feat of work the book I mean it, it teems with research but it wears it so lightly and it also and I think this is probably very hard to do for your family when you're writing about recent history but also you're writing up about people you love you're not writing about people who you are now distanced from and it doesn't read remotely like a hagiography she's scrupulously honest about people's true characters the brother who was too docile the other brother who was aggressive to the point of bullying the sister Hadley's grandmother who failed to embrace her American life and forever mourned the fiancé that she'd left behind in Paris the life that she's living, that she fails to embrace, is the life that the rest of her siblings uh, in extremely dangerous circumstances in Europe throughout the war would have dreamt of. Um, And this grandmother submits reluctantly to a self-erasure for her safety to please her brothers and it's something she never recovers from and she grows into the very sad adult that Hadley knew. And I want to read a passage about that here. Sarah had done what she'd had to in order to survive the war, but in saving herself she lost everything that had made her life worth living. Other things took their place, her children, eventually her grandchildren, so I can't say she made the wrong choice, and she would have never said that either. But no, she wasn't happy when she got to America. She was grateful to it, for the safety it provided her and the material comforts it brought her. But looking at the photos of her in Farmingdale, her makeup so perfect, her face so sad, it's clear the price she paid for survival was painfully high. She moved to America, but emotionally she never really unpacked her bags there, my father said. 
Sarah endured a specifically female tragedy. She gave up not just her true love, but her dreams, her professional fulfilment in exchange for protection by marriage. Alex got a medal for going to war. Jacques could send Sarah his metal prison plate, but no one was going to give her any plaudits for what she did. While her brothers performed the traditionally masculine roles of carrying out acts of extraordinary bravery, Sarah endured the more feminine role of private self-erasure. Beautiful writing, and I can see uh, all I've seen everywhere is enormous praise for that book, and I can understand why. It's also a really interesting thing to read about during the pandemic, what life was like during a war. As for most of us, particularly those who grew up in Britain, this is the closest we've ever come to a war. But as the journalist Daisy Buchanan noted the other day, it feels like we're in wartime, I thought, as I went to the shop to buy a large bar of chocolate and a bottle of Malbec. If this is not the same, the not knowing if a family member had died for two years until a much-delayed postcard turned up saying goodbye, they had been caught, the hiding out in someone's house in the countryside for two years, you know, someone you didn't know, basically just hiding in their attic it is sensitive it's captivating it's absorbing and it does the very very clever merging of vast geopolitics with interior emotional landscape sarah who is known variably as sala as i said in that paragraph so sarah or sala's loneliness jack's fear and it's heart in the mouth stuff it's truly devastating but it's also beautiful and uplifting there's a lot of hope in it um particularly through the life led by alex which is just this luxurious star-studded cocktail partying paris that he manages to return to time and time again through sheer fortitude of overcoming a war and of just working, working, working to provide the family he dreamt of for himself and his family. What else have you been enjoying, Dolly? Another book that's out now that I highly recommend is Silver Sparrow by Teari Jones which I'm halfway through and loving. I was so excited to read this um, because An American Marriage was a book that I loved so, so much last year and was the winner of the 2019 Women's Prize for Fiction. Silver Sparrow is about a man married to two women in 1980s Atlanta. One family is public, one is secret. And it's told from the perspective and the narration of the daughter who is in his secret family. And the story is about what happens when she meets the half-sister who has no idea that she has a half-sister. This book has all the characteristics of an American marriage that made me fall in love with it. There's precise characterization, relationships with really moving, immediate depth, utter readability from page one. That's the thing that I just, I'm so fascinated how she does it, that she just pulls you in from the first paragraph and it's it's so impossible to put down um but she also just delivers these killer one-liners in her prose that is just a gift that i'm so so envious of as a writer she can say so much in a handful of words she delivered a sentence in an american marriage that i found so moving and so devastating that i underline it every time i give a copy to someone because I want them to read that sentence and fall in love with it and know that it was a sentence that I fell in love with as well. Uh, Here's an example of how she does it. 
in Silver Sparrow from the perspective of a teenage girl. So this is a teenage girl talking about her first boyfriend. I had a boyfriend, Marcus McCready, and he was the secret centre of everything. I just like, I read that and I was like, oh my God, that's how you, that's what it is when you have a teenage boyfriend. The secret centre, you're sitting having lunch with your parents and the centre of all your thoughts and everything you say and everything they say, you're thinking about how you're going to relay it back to that boy. You know, that's so evocative. It's so good, isn't it? Every song you listen to, you know, he's the secret centre of it. And then on the next page, she says, when he touches her for the first time, she says, I can envision my heart like the tiny jingling bell on a cat's collar. Just incredible, incredible, incredible writing. A really unique writer. So, uh, yeah, that's just an absolute gift to enjoy during this lockdown period. Am I right in thinking that this was written before American Marriage, but was published in the States, just wasn't published in the UK? I think that might be true, actually, because I just Googled it and I think it was published in years ago in the mm. US when I looked at uh, Amazon America. Isn't that a shame? If she hadn't won the Women's Prize for Fiction, would we have got Silver Sparrow? I think that just shows that publishing is doing a lot of long overdue catching up of books that should have been published sooner, you know, writers yeah. that should have been acclaimed earlier. That's something I think about all the time with Save Me, which is a drama written and starring Lenny James on Sky Atlantic. And actually, he's just dropped another series called Save Me 2, which I think is even better than Save Me. It's a breathtaking piece of work. It's ostensibly about the search for his daughter who he never met who goes missing when she comes to meet him for the first time but it's actually also a drama about the lives of um, a group of individuals who live on a council estate in London and it gives um, and it gives a depth and warmth to characters that we so often see utilised just as a stereotype in like a gritty quote-unquote drama and the real tragedy of this is that Lenny James wrote it 20 years ago and that's how long it took it to get made that is a brilliant thing that I recommend and I also really enjoyed Mae Martin that you recommended last week in Feel Good Oh, I'm glad. What I am a little bit more equivocal about, and I know I'm a bit late to it, but I've been trying to resist the cultural pressure that anything on Netflix or telly has to be watched in the in the first two weeks that it lands, or it's out of date, and we can only talk about brand new books, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I find that sort of quite a stifling, claustrophobic way to enjoy things. So I've been trying to resist it. So as a result, I have only just watched. But boy, do I want to talk about Tiger King, Dolly. What did you make of this? So I kind of watched it for the same reasons you watched it. I watched it because everyone was watching it and I felt like I had to watch it. And I felt immediately rank when I was watching. Like at the end of episode one, I was like, oh, I feel really gross. And I don't think this is very ethical documentary making. And this isn't like really informing me of anything. It's not making me feel good. It's making me feel like really uncomfortable. Um, and for some reason, I just carried on watching it. And then I fucking binged the whole thing in a day. And I felt Oof. like really, really down at the end of the day. And I remember like really trying to work out why I felt so grim. And then I was like, it's that fucking program that I watched. And I actually really, really regret watching it. I didn't need to watch the whole thing. And I wish I hadn't because I, I, I felt very icky about a lot of it. I think Doreen St. Felix summed up that sentiment quite well uh, by saying she felt hungover and hoodwinked 
after watching it. Yeah, I think it might have been Brett Easton Ellis who said watching Tiger King is like taking really, really bad coke and just knowing that you should stop. And yet for some reason you can't. So for anyone who hasn't watched it or for anyone unaware, what is Tiger King about, Dolly? Tiger King is a true crime documentary on Netflix about the life of a zookeeper called Joe Exotic, not his Christian name, and the competitive and bloodthirsty and wild world of big cat conservationists in America. We will be discussing the programme now, so there will be some spoilers. So if you don't want to listen to it, then fast forward 10 minutes. Tiger King seems sort of hilarious at first and you can see that the documentary maker, he spent five years making it. Um, and the guy who made it is very interested in uh, conservation of animals and investigating the fact that there are, I mean, this is shocking. There are 10,000 big cats living in captivity in the US where weirdly it's not illegal to keep them. And then there are only 4,000 big cats living in the wild. So you can see why he was compelled to make documentary. And it's kind of hilarious at first and you think that these it's about just some oddballs that okay shouldn't keep these big cats but they seem to really love them but after just a few episodes it becomes deeply uncomfortable and sad and I think the real story is not that of big cat captivity sad as it is um, but of the abusive power players the Floridian Carol Baskin whose name I can never here again, I reckon if you do a shot every time Joe Exotic says her name, you would be fucking wasted by, what do you reckon, episode two? He's just, he's yeah. absolutely obsessed with her. Also, I have to just interject here and say that the comedian and writer Tessa Coates did such a brilliant video that she posted online of her Carol Baskin impression that we have to insert here. Hey there, all you cool cats and kittens. It's Carol Baskin from Big Cat Rescue. We had a wonderful day today, wishing a very happy birthday to a baby bobcat. I murdered my husband. Thank you to our volunteer green tops. The polyamorous, bleached, smirking Joe Exotic, as Dolly says, that's not his real name. He's got like two previous names. And Doc Bhagavan Antel, a self-styled bleach blonde, again, guru. And Carol Baskin doesn't pay her volunteers to work in the zoo. Joe Exotic finds homeless people, people in bus shelters, basically vulnerable people who cannot afford not to take him up on his offer to work in his zoo, where they work 12-hour days for $150 a week and live in rat-infested camper vans. Then you've got Doc Antle, who has four wives who he dresses in lycra, kitty print and marries at a very young age the main investor to joe exotic zoo is a man called jeff Lowe, and this is near the end but it made me howl in fury actually he says that his pregnant wife is going to be going back in the gym asap and then he proceeds to show us multiple bikini pictures of the nanny who he's hired and you feel genuinely fearful for this woman coming into this household and what I just found really infuriating actually about the documentary is why was this abuse not explored? Because to be sure, this is a tale of tremendous abuse. Joe Exotic seduces his teenage husband, Travis, one of two partners. He's in a thruple with weed and meth. And Travis becomes so deluded and miserable that he accidentally shoots himself in the head, I, I, which is just 
it's so uncomfortable not seeing that confronted more in the documentary. You know, at Travis's funeral, Joe tells this awful, crass story about how Travis liked doing this thing with his balls. And there's been an Instagram post since the documentary landed on Netflix in late March about how Joe Exotic allegedly found and drugged young men that he found in an Oklahoma nightclub with the help of an accomplice. What did you feel about this extremely chaotic narrative thread, which starts off as one story but turns into another that's left totally unresolved? So th- this is the thing that I found really difficult about it. And this is this is why I sort of wish that I'd resisted the kind of enticing craziness of that show and I should have just switched off, is that I found it so unforgivable that they were so hell-bent, the creators of this show, on kind of following the really like zany, crazy, unsubstantiated stories that I just felt like so little care and respect and attention was paid to the death of this young man and those like poor lost boys. And it was just like hardly really investigated or dug into and no one really kind of looked at how that man unraveled to such an extent and how a life was lost. And I think it's so unethical that that was given a fraction of the airtime to the rest of these like fucking mad stories about people like carting tiger cubs through Las Vegas casinos. Like obviously that's a terrible story of animal abuse and something that definitely has to be spoken about and investigated, but it felt like a huge gaping hole for me in the series. And also the glaringly obvious thing that I haven't mentioned so far is that seeing those animals being treated with so little respect and care and being caged up and manhandled and used for entertainment, I just found just horribly disturbing. And again, I just wish I'd sort of switched off. Although I suppose it's it's good to be aware that this is still so commonplace in certain states of America. And still has not been made illegal, as you find out as you find out by the end. I mean, the documentary ostensibly starts out, and I think that's what the filmmaker is trying to do, about investigating how Joe Exotic landed up in prison for allegedly hiring a hitman to murder Carol Baskin, another big cat owner, who somehow styles herself as saving cats from captivity but keeps them in cages just like anyone else who owns big cats. So that's another really odd thing that's not investigated enough. What I really didn't understand is why did the documentary not look at the psychology of someone who likes to keep things in captivity? And how was it not connecting the way that Doc Antle and Joe Exotic and Carol Baskin, by not paying her volunteers, keep humans in captivity too? They're collecting wives and husbands and docile workers like they were pets. Like, what is, what makes the kind of person that wants to collect animals and humans in this way? Like, what is, what is their psychological makeup? Because these people have something massive and really terrifying in common. And instead, what we were treated to is what Doreen St. Felix calls a kaleidoscope of terrible taste. People are interviewed without their T-shirt on at one completely balmy moment where you think, my God, I've just 
slightly got to surrender to this collective madness in the way that Alain de Botton talks about surrendering to, to this pandemic. One, one person's interviewed whilst in the bath. And she provides actually a really persuasive theory for why we like watching what she calls prestige trash. Tiger King is what we watched two weeks into our isolation. Comfort television wasn't working. We needed something uglier. For the past four years, we've trained ourselves not to laugh at the antics of bad men. Our collective embrace of Tiger King speaks of a renewed craving for the crass, the politically incorrect, the culturally insensitive, an outlet for the id now that the ego is under siege. I think that's very astute. I was actually struck by that recently when that thought when I was watching series 18 of the Kardashians. Now, bear with me. This is the first series of the Kardashians that I've ever watched. And in one of these episodes, they have a physical fight. And I was really shocked. Courtney and Kim have a physical fight that leaves Kim with bleeding cuts on her back that Kendall then has to clean. And I was really thinking about this, and I don't think that would have happened in an earlier series. And it's not that it's happening now because they aren't self-aware and they accidentally filmed with the fisticuffs and then they couldn't edit it out. The Kardashians and the Jenners are the most self-aware people on the planet in that they have made billions out of observing themselves they are their own constant observers in real time their observing ego is just swiveling 360 and monetizing it all and i think they included it because they know and they know narrative documentary better than anyone that crass is selling right now yeah i think cynically that's very true and i and i do think we have to think about why do we like gross stuff so much at the moment you know liking gritty and I really hate that term gritty so I always want to put a quote unquote around it liking gritty drama and documentary isn't anything new you know we've always enjoyed this idea of narrative transportation but I think it's becoming increasingly dangerous when we flat pack it into entertainment and we don't look at the ramifications of that I mean clearly Tiger King, uh, the abuse of employees and and spouses in Tiger King is much more serious than an, like a literal cat fight in the Kardashians. But I do think that as the internet becomes more insane, like internet content memes become more insane, so does TV. And I was reading a, a really interesting piece in the in the Verge about this sense of kind of infinite crassness or grist for the content mill. And there's a sense that this is grist, you know, John being told to keep his T-shirt off during filming because presumably it makes him seem more redneck, his mouth full of these missing teeth destroyed by the meth addiction that his husband basically encouraged him to develop. And this is where I think that writing about something can be more of an appropriate medium. And, and there was actually a long read in, in New York magazine last year about, about Tiger King, that it can be a more appropriate medium to investigate torrid tales like this than it can be to see them on screen. Like it feels like you could maybe have more of a responsibility. Grist for the content mill. That's definitely something to think about. It's a really catchy phrase. Lastly, I do just have to ask you, do you think that Carol did kill her ex-husband and feed him through the meat grinder? I don't know. I don't know, Pandora. What do you think? I think she actually might have. I think she's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> she's so like, hello, big kitties and kittens. Is Carol Baskin here today? And you're like, oh, my God, you will haunt me in my dreams forever. 
Have you heard Tom Hanks doing it? Thank you, engineers. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. It's now time for a little dance break. Do you like that um, improvised bit of formatting I've added into the Hilo uh, thenceforth during lockdown? This is a song that Dolly and I have both coincidentally been dancing. Well, I've been trying to dance, but my toddler, much sooner than I would have liked, has decided I'm not allowed to sing and I'm not allowed to dance. And she shouts at me when I do either. But I have been trying to bop along to this to get the old endorphins going. And it turns out old hippie pants in Devon has also been bopping along. So uh, here it is, a nice little dance break. And it is compulsory. I am sending the police around if you don't pause and have a bop right now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Instead of Ask the Hilo this week, we have an author special. Dolly is now going to interview Holly Bourne. It is too tricky, funnily enough, for three people to try and record it remotely without everyone just talking over each other. So it's time, rather poetically, for Dolly to meet Holly. Our guest this week is a writer whose books Pandora and I absolutely love. So we are so thrilled to welcome her to the Hilo, even if it is remotely. Holly Bourne is an author of both adult and young adult fiction. Her first adult novel, the best-selling How Do You Like Me Now, focused on the story of a woman with an enormous, adoring online following, but with a personal life and an internal life that was in tatters. It explored themes of the lies of social media, the fetishization of authenticity, and the pressures placed on women both in relationships and in their work and public-facing lives. It was sharp, funny, highly perceptive, and one of mine and Pandora's favourite reads of the summer of 2018. Her new book, Pretending, is about a woman called April who is desperate to find love and yet cannot get past date five. That is, until she decides to become the woman she thinks all men are looking for. Cool, sexy, wild, greedy, boyish, carefree, problem-free, stress-free, and most importantly, trauma-free. April gives herself a new cool girl alias, Gretel, to help her shed the darkness of her own relationship history and her experiences of sexual abuse to become a dream girlfriend. When she meets Joshua, it seems to work, but how long can Gretel thrive and keep the real April a secret? Marianne Keyes has said of the book, Magnificent, I Bow Down. I have said, a thoughtful, intelligent, urgent novel that women need to read. Holly, welcome to the Hilo. 
Thank you very much for having me. It's going to be weird listening to myself as I listen to this podcast every week. <laughs> oh, thank you very much for listening. So Holly, can you tell me a bit about how you came up with uh, the premise of the book and the character of April? Because I know that it was very much informed by the work that you have done and some of the real life stories that you've been exposed to. Uh, yes, so I spent five years working uh, for an online charity that helps young people. And I spent two of those years on the front line, sort of uh, helping young people with their sex and relationship problems. And during that time, I was kind of exposed to the kind of huge epidemic of sexual violence experienced by women Um almost always in a relationship it kind of really changed my idea of you know what you know people who say me too a lot of the time they're saying me too but it was my partner it was my boyfriend and I had Mm. to help so many survivors in that context and that job really transformed my life and to some degree really messed me up um, which they did tell me would happen before I took it on and um, I learned so much from that and really wanted to kind of continue my work with survivors and wrote books about mental health and about feminism and it was when Me Too came out it kind of reignited all those memories and I've since become an ambassador for Women's Aid and it just kind of gave me an idea that I wanted to tell the story that I had seen so often um, which was not only about how you recover from sort of sexual trauma um, but how do you recover years later? Um, Where are the love stories that emerge up from me too because if you look at the statistics one in three uh, young women have experienced sexual violence from a partner and um, which is a horrifying statistic but it's mm. to the point where it's almost normalized mm. and in those conversations I just didn't see a space for what happens if you're a survivor and you've worked a bit on yourself and you actually want to find love again um, you want to find a relationship you kind of know that what happened to you wasn't your fault, but you also know that that trauma might taint you some in some way. And I just felt that there was incredible love stories that must be happening all over the country where men and women are able to kind of get over this trauma in a loving context. And I just hadn't seen those being told. So I wanted to tell that through April's uh, story and examine love and trauma together. The book begins with three words, I hate men. It is a phenomenal opener, hugely impactful. Everyone I know who's read the book has said that that first, that first chapter really, really uh, suck with them. And it plunges you straight into the mindset of April, who is not just despondent about dating culture and particularly online dating culture. She is recovering from sexual abuse while being exposed to stories about it on a daily basis through her job. I wanted to know, did you experience any pushback or did you feel any nerves about writing on these topics? I was absolutely terrified about that first chapter and how it would be received because you know the opening lines are I hate men and then it goes on Mm. to list all the things (laughs) April hates about men which I did crowdsource um, when I was writing it I just sent messages to 
all my friends kind of going, what do you just really hate about men? And they came back with such wonderfully specific examples um, that mm. I loved and shoved so many of in there, like going to a house party and men just plug in their own music. That's just something that happens all the time. I was like, I never realised that they did that, but I was like, every party I've ever been to, that has happened. Um, and, you know, to some degree it, it is hate speech, um, but it is a build up to a joke, which is she goes on this massive rant about all these awful things, some kind of mild and some quite horrifying. And then she gets a text from the guy she really likes and she's like, oh, you know what? It's fine. All is forgiven. And <laughs> so I'm hoping that the punchline erases some of the hate speech. Um, <laughs> and I just wanted that set up to I feel like that chapter prepares the book's questions which is this dance that I think especially straight women are always dancing towards kind of if you're sort of a feminist and you believe in equality then you're kind of open to all the ways in which men sometimes often without meaning to can sort of oppress you and how there's that power imbalance but then you just really want to be loved by one chosen by one um, to live the rest of your life with one sort of how confusing it is basically to want to shag your oppressor um yeah yeah no it's it's very very well put and actually it strikes me that a lot of this book is about how to love as a heterosexual woman while being aware of the inequalities that can still exist in relationships and often go unseen to what extent do you think these inequalities still exist in domestic and romantic dynamics to what extent do you believe that they're ubiquitous I think there is so many weird gender norms that straight people fall into and I don't think it's even consciously done um, mm. And in How Do You Like Me Now, the book kind of examines the wedding industry a lot, where there is, you know, with quite a scathing look at it, because, you know, there is such a kind of script, um, sort yeah. of how a sexual, uh, heterosexual relationship goes. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, the script is always kind of like, the women are always wanting things to go a little bit faster commitment-wise, and the men are always a bit more hesitant, and the woman walks down the aisle. There's all this sort of stuff that we just, these scripts that we follow, I find it fascinating ways to listen, talk to my friends who are in same sex relationships and realize that they, because there isn't a script, they have to have a conversation about these things and just yeah. how healthy that is. Um, I think some of the things that in terms of dating, I think there's lots of weird stuff that happens. I mean, just the fact that so many men seem to think that it's appropriate to just send you photographs with their flaccid or erect penises in <laughs> and I was like that's insane you know they wouldn't do that if you're just walking down the street and um, to just the kind of what we do when we're dating you know how much you feel that you should even speak on a date if you're a woman compared to how much you should listen um mm. you know how you handle sex and then I think talking to lots of women I like I did for the book even women who sort of haven't experienced trauma like April has, you know, there's so many women I know who are in relationships with men who they generally are love and think are good guys. And yet they're like, he hasn't fucking cleaned the toilet our whole relationship ever. I think he yeah. thinks a magical fairy comes and cleans the loo and wanting to kind of get explaining emotional labor or explaining how you're ending up doing more housework, but without wanting to be a nag because you never mm. want to be a nag. 
Um, mm. And then so many women I know, their relationship transforms from the moment they have children and they just suddenly find that they've fallen into these roles and they don't yeah. understand because they were trying so hard not to. And so I do think it is uh, very prevalent and um, and yet and problematic, but then love is such a wonderful thing and something I really believe in. So, yeah, I wanted the book to kind of explore the good and the bad. Yeah, and it really, really does so deftly. And the book is very funny, I should mention. I was laughing a lot throughout it. It's full of humour and warmth and, and genuinely very moving moments of romance. I've heard it be described as a rom-com about recovering from rape. That is a very difficult tone to strike. How crucial was it for you that these subjects, that are there are no subjects more serious, um, how important was it to you that they were explored with lightness and humour as well as unflinching honesty? It was, yeah, I was, that was my other second big worry apart from the hate speech. <laughs> At the beginning, I was just like, is it appropriate to have comedy in a book about rape? You know, is that allowed? Um, and had to do a lot of soul searching and a lot of research. And I think I watched Nanette by Hannah Gatsby like a million times. Because <laughs> mm. I do think that you can. I think only women can, um, if mm. talking about female rape, could try and come at it from an angle of comedy. And I thought it was important to me to not have any comedy about the trauma. But to sort yeah. of... It was so important for me to show that you can be traumatised and also be really funny and laugh in your life mm. and laugh with your friends and be vivacious and be fun to be around and be great at your job and just as I said be an outwardly presenting warm welcoming hilarious woman and um, with great yeah. friendships and yet underneath you know you've got this space so the comedy was never about what happens to April but I really wanted to follow the generic conventions of a romantic comedy because I was like well why can't survivors get romance stories you know why don't we see them very often in lots of romantic comedies the worst a woman can be is a little bit bossy or a little bit clumsy or a little bit wound up but if you look mm. at the statistics so many women out there falling in love you know are thinking when do I tell them this thing that happened to me should I ever tell them is that going to change everything falling in love and letting themselves be vulnerable, even though they carry so much pain, like the acts of bravery to still want to love and believe and trust after something like that has happened to you. I was like, these love stories need to be told. And they, so people might be able to explore the darker parts of so many women's experiences of trauma. If there are some jokes along the way, I think comedy can really kind of lighten things that you can't lighten but if you're kind of giggling and turning through the pages you actually then sort of might be learning a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder and yeah. the lifelong impact of of rape and things which are really important for people to understand yeah I wanted to talk to you, Holly, about writing sex, uh, which you do so, so well. There's a lot of bad sex in the book, and there's also a lot of really good sex in the book. And I think it's really important that authors don't shy away from writing about sex. And the more that I read and the older I get, the more I really, truly believe that. But I know firsthand how difficult it can be to do. How do you approach writing sex? 
Well, I've got a rule um, that people are free, free to argue with me about on the internet, but I don't let any of my female characters orgasm through penetration alone. <laughs> and that, that is like the hill I'm willing to die on. Do you know what? I'm? Yeah, I'm very, very with you on that. I think that only because this is not me saying that women cannot have penetrative orgasms, but in every sex scene that you watch uh, on TV or film or in porn, it seems only penetrative orgasms are ever, ever seen. And obviously those are the orgasms that generally mean that men have to do less work. Yes. <laughs> I know, find yourself a Gretel that can, um, you know, God forbid you feel like you're not very good in bed. Like, <laughs> as a man, when actually, I think, you know, 75% of women need, you know, additional clitoral stimulation. And that was, you know, from being a sex advisor, you know, I had so many women come to me every single day thinking there was something actually wrong with them um, because they couldn't. And all the only stories that they ever saw um, showed women that could. And to me, it was just so important to kind of tell the truth about that in sex. Holly, that is a great political act that you've done there. Truly, I take my hat off to you. It's weird what you've ended up standing for in life. But as I said, I just saw so many women so screwed up about that. Um, At the charity, I was just like, okay, I'm only ever going to tell stories where they come because something is actually happening to their clitoris. And, you know, I'm not saying that other women... um, you know, that's all women, but for so many women that is. So that's the thing that I try to do with all the sex in my books is I only, I think, put sex in if it's uh, crucial to the plot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just because considering I was a sex advisor, I'm actually quite a prude. (laughs) And also my book, both my parents are alive and read my book. So there's part of me just going, oh no, dad's going to read this. Um, But to me, it's really important to to tell the truth about sex. Because I do think there's a lot of messaging out there and lots of showing of sex which I think can make women feel really bad about themselves and it's not just pornography although I believe pornography can be largely unhelpful um, to perpetuating those things but you know just even things like well-respected tv programs uh, award-winning novels seem to kind of fall sometimes in my opinion Mm. in how realistic they are (laughs) Mm. um, in how they show sex and um the other thing that I thought was really important when I was training to be a sex and relationship advisor was we learned so much about the importance of safe sex in terms of condoms and STIs and pregnancy, but nobody really talks about the emotionally safe side of sex. And mm. to me, it was really important to tell stories of sex where both characters feel emotionally safe or the idea of emotional safety is explored and how yeah. important it is for a woman in particular, I would argue, to feel emotionally safe in order to get off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to get out there. Um, so, yeah, it's awkward and I feel horrible writing it and I'm just like, Ugh! but to me, that is part of the work. Well, I have to say the bad sex was believable and made my toes curl in a bad way and the good sex was very believable and made my toes curl in a good way Holly so you've nailed it thank you nailed the nailing (laughs) so as I mentioned in the introduction April creates this kind of alter ego this woman called Gretel uh, who takes the reins of her dating life and her dating profile 
and uh, Gretel in the book, when Gretel is conceived, she kind of writes these handbook entries that are interspersed between the chapters uh, from the perspective of Gretel about how to be a good girlfriend, how to behave on dates, all of which push this impossible sort of cool girl agenda of how to be the perfect woman. And these bits were so poignant to me. Uh, these kind of rules uh, that are fed to women from such a young age of how not to kind of scare a man off. Don't be too messy. Don't be too human. Don't be too much. Where do you think these demands come from, particularly in the dating world? It was interesting for me to kind of explore the concept of a cool girl in this book sort of eight years after either it was in Gone Girl. And I remember reading that section of Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn about the cool girl and just standing up on the train, on my commuting train, just I felt so seen. And there were so many think pieces and stuff written about it. And then I was like, has anything changed? Like fourth wave feminism has hit since that book came out like surely we wouldn't still being the start be being the cool gal and but the kind of the more I explored it and started reading all the dating advice online which I did for research my targeted ads have never recovered I still just get like <laughs> these awful ads where I just felt like kind of going I was researching a book stop sending me fertility treatment advertisement um <laughs> was like you know, this, there is, yes, that actually doesn't seem to have changed much. Um, maybe the cool girl's a vegan now and she's just accidentally skinny because she does yoga for spiritual enlightenment. But, you know, there was, it's kind of morphed a bit more. And what, what I kind of found most interesting about the cool girl, I was like, this is April's idea of what she thinks men want. Um, and it also what she thinks other women are behaving like. And that was the thing. It's not, I don't feel like people are pretend to be cool girls just for men. I feel like it's for women as well. And there's this sort of slight toxic thing that happens in women's behaviours where they're kind of not only trying to find the guy, they're trying to get chosen by a guy over other women. And therefore we might pretend to be things also because we're looking at other women pretending to be a certain way. And I think some of the most transforming uh, conversations I've ever had with my friends is just admitting I'm not that chill about things. It's <laughs> <laughs> just not. And like I'm like, oh, I just you know, spent two hours worrying about this. And they're like, me too. And I'm like, what? I thought you were so chill. And they're like, oh my God, no, I just lay face down on my carpet for two hours this morning. <laughs> and I was like, I was doing that too. And it's like the freedom that comes um, from admitting to other women, actually, that you're quite hard work, you're quite screwed up, you find life difficult. Um, it's just as an important conversation to have than with men that you're trying to fall in love with. You need vulnerability in order to actually have an emotional, authentic connection with somebody. And so if you're trying to be the cool girl to guys in the long run, you know, that's not going to pave the way for a healthy, emotionally fulfilling relationship. And actually, it's the same with girls as well. If you try to be the cool girl to other women, you're kind of maybe closing yourself off from having incredibly nourishing friendships as well. Without giving too much of the story away, something that I loved about the book was how it doesn't present a perfect man as a kind of antidote to April's past. Life presents her with a very well-intentioned, very good-hearted man who is trying his best and makes mistakes. And as you've mentioned in this interview is kind of unlearning the historic 
gender rules that we're all collectively examining. Were those contradictions and complications in the characterization of your kind of big romantic male lead, was that important for you to not kind of shy away from that, that his imperfections? Totally. Getting the character of Joshua right was the thing that I found hardest. And the question that was in my head the whole time I was writing the book was, does Joshua deserve April? Is he good enough? Because mm. I was very mm. taken with her. Um, I really fell in love with her kind of in all the time that I had to spend being in her head, exhausting as it was being in her head for the time it took me to write the book. Um, I was just like, is Joshua good enough? And it was a question that I didn't know the answer to. And often when I write fiction, I do know what the end of the book is going to be. But for me, I had to actually write the book to work out if work out the ending for myself. And for a yeah. long time, I felt quite cynical and was like, no, I just don't think he is. And, you know, he's all right, but he's not amazing. And is this the least what we can hope for is just not an arsehole, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, and that, that's a concern, if that's what straight women are kind of going, well, he's not an arsehole, so I'll marry him because, you know, mm. so many of them are. And so that was something that I was asking of myself the whole time that I was writing the book. And I'm happy with where the book got taken, but I was very careful to leave it quite open so that the reader can decide for themselves if they think that April and Joshua would be a good match. Because, um, you know, he does still present quite problematic behaviour um, quite often, and sometimes he is great, but he's not amazing. He's just not an arsehole. And mm. so is that all we should expect does that make him worthy of her like I don't know it's not up to me you know I just kind of stirred a puddle um <laughs> as an yeah. author and you know let my readers kind of work out what they feel what they think and so they can ask questions of themselves maybe that they might find helpful Holly the book is dedicated to the good eggs I think I know what and who that means but I'd love to hear from you who the good eggs are to you <laughs> Um, it is dedicated to the good eggs and that was the one thing that I did really want to show in the books was sort of the men that you can believe in because um, I do have very many men in my life that I love um, that are genuinely good eggs I'm very lucky that I have an incredibly woke dad um, I have my mother's surname we grew up in a very feminist household my mum was the main breadwinner so I had that very positive influence and when I worked at the charity, I worked with lots of men who were also on the front line with me working with survivors, uh, just incredible, incredible men. And I tried to really show that um, in the story when April's work colleagues, you know, you don't have to just be a woman to work <laughs> with survivors, lots of men who are kind of doing this incredibly important work as well. Um, and yeah, I am lucky enough to have found a good man, you know, a good egg. Um, and I was very scared about him reading the book, but he just opened the first chapter and belly laughed. And I was just like, mm. thank God for that. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, I, I do have hope. And April hates men. And I definitely had to examine my relationship with men for a long time after I did that job. And mm. I had to go to, you know, psychotherapy during the job and after the job to make sense of everything that I had seen. But the 
you know, I it was really important for me to find faith and hope in men. And after I had had that experience working for the charity, and I'm really proud of myself, I have been able to. But um, I think I will always still be a girls' girl. <laughs> um, and my favourite stories to write are always about female friendships. But you know, as you mentioned, I think when I was described when I first read this proof and I was describing it to my friends, it was very difficult to get across that this uh, really is a takedown of. Um, a lot of just very normalized patriarchal behaviors uh, in the dating world, in domestic settings, just in the world full stop. But it is enormously hopeful and uh, very romantic in its own way. And as you touched on, you know, there's a great deal of heroicism, I think, to that protagonist, to that main character, as there is a great deal of heroicism to a lot of the women that I know who haven't had a great time uh, in their relationships or in kind of coercive sexual dynamics over the years that have you know every woman sadly has got their story and I think to be able to separate um, patriarchal and misogynistic culture from individual men and be able to pick yourself up and continue to love them and help them learn I think is a is a heroic act definitely yes any woman dating now I think deserves some sort of purple heart or not a purple heart but some sort of medal um, purple heart taking that too far um you know it's I think it is hard um but I do think yeah I do think it's worth hoping I think love is the most incredible thing about being a human being and you know we are wired to attach and so you should never feel ashamed for wanting to still love and wanting to still hope and wanting to still find someone. And I think it's sad that so many women find it so hard. And there is this real sort of scarcity mindset, I think, that, you know, there's just so few good eggs out there. But I do think they are. And it is worth believing in good men and also kind of examining your own sort of messaging about what a good man is and maybe you know you need to explore how important it is that he has a six-pack or he's an alpha or you know it's I think we have a lot of internalized misogyny too about what we expect out of a man and there might be a lot more good eggs in the basket if we are able to kind of unlearn ourselves what we want and expect from men if we're going to be throwing rocks at them saying well you shouldn't be expecting us to be so perfect and so this and that and so hopefully the book kind of shows that it's not all just women going men are terrible it's sort of like well you know actually men can get really really hurt by women in romantic entanglements as well Pretending is out now. It's published by Hodder and Stoughton and I cannot think of a more important uh, modern love story to tell. Holly Bourne, thank you so much for joining us on the Hilo. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to the Hilo. If you have a question for Ask the Hilo, which will be back next week, you can email us show at gmail.com or tweet us at show. Laura Marling's album was out last week and it is just as perfect as we all knew it would be. So we're going to end on our favourite song from her new album, Song for Our Daughter. You took out that money that your mama had saved She told me she kept it for running away 
fortunes can change You've picked up some tricks that you learned on your way For fear you'd be lonely if you never changed Oh my You lost your faith That's stamps.com. Code program.